Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. You'll find the text, if you don't have a Bible, on the back of the bulletin. We'll continue our study of Ephesians and Paul's preamble to his great prayer that closes out chapter 3. This is part 3 of an extended digression. You remember in verse 1, he sets up the prayer, For this reason I, Paul... Prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he doesn't really return to that till verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees. So he's setting up a prayer. And the rest of verses 1 through 13 are preparation and a, um, an aside to put in context the great prayer he's going to pray. And we're going to, God willing, finish out that aside um, this morning. I'd like to begin by reading Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Although, no, let's just read the whole chapter. You had to set up the prayer, then read the prayer. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask... You not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, we too pray that you would, by your Spirit, enlighten our hearts, strengthen us with power, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may be strengthened to comprehend, along with all the saints, the magnitude of the love of Christ. Help us to see the glories of the privileges you have given to us, Help us to think rightly about them and rightly about them in relationship to this world and its present suffering. Help us to to see things from a biblical perspective and not a worldly perspective. Lord, we we ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, as we finish out this preamble, we're going to look at two points. The title of this message is The Cost of Our Access. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, really verses 11 and 12, and then we'll look at verse 13. So Paul has been explaining the source of his ministry, how this new teaching that he has given at the end of chapter 2, that specifically, as, as listed in verse 6, the mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Or as he said it in chapter 2, um, verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made us both one. 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. That's the mystery. That the Jew and the Gentile would cease to be in Christ. They'd become something new. They'd become the church. Become his people. Some theologians have referred to this as the third race. Um, And so those things are left behind in a a primary sense as we become Christians. So Paul in in, in 1 Corinthians 9 can say, to the Jew I become a Jew. Well, Paul, aren't you a Jew? I'm a Christian. To the Gentile I become a Gentile. So one under the law, to his one not under the law, I come as one not under the law. And so Paul doesn't fundamentally identify in the first instance either as Jew or Gentile. He's, he's under the law of Christ. He's a Christian now. That doesn't eradicate his, his, his ethnic loyalties, his desire for his countrymen. But first and foremost, Paul views himself not first and foremost as a Jew or first and foremost as a Gentile, but he's a Christian. He's in Christ. And that's the mystery that Paul has revealed. And so he begins to give a grounding of this teaching because he admits it's a new teaching. It's not been previously taught. It's not been previously clearly revealed. He received it through a revelation. And then in the second part, his own ministry is given from God. So both the content of his teaching is from God and the authority to teach is from God. God set him apart as an apostle. God gifted him this grace. God called him to the ministry that he is now involved in. And he... We culminated last week's message looking at God's purpose in that. Why is it that God has given Paul this ministry? Well, two reasons. Verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Oh, sorry, back in verse 8. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So first, ask what Paul is to do. He's to preach the glories of Christ to the Gentiles. And he's to bring to light for everyone the wisdom of God's plan. So that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. There's a heavenly audience watching this display of God's wisdom and glory. So Paul's been set apart as an apostle to preach to the Gentiles, to make known to everyone, so that through the church, God's wisdom will be put on display and the heavenly rulers and authorities would take notice and see. That's, that's a pretty big, pretty big reason. And I remind you again that more is at stake in our unity, more is at stake in how we function as a church than simply our convenience. Um, Jesus makes it clear in John 17, the world is watching, and, and he links our oneness, our unity, to how the world will come to believe that he is the Messiah. And here Paul links the heavenly audience. So, so how we function as a body matters, both to the watching world and the watching spiritual beings. No pressure. Man, it's some, we're caught up in some amazing things. But Paul ends this section by talking about specifically what that unity looks like. He's made it clear both Jew and Greek have unity. And he's reconciled us to God. Now we're going to see that unity clearly in verse 12. God accomplished this eternal plan. This was realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. There's a lot going on in verse 12. We're going to take a few minutes to look at it. But first, let's consider our bold access, our bold, confident access. And really want to focus this on the two prepositions. Prepositions coordinate um, words and clauses. And so the first one I'm going to look at, your, your blank, is Christ's church has boldness and access in him. Christ's church has boldness and access in him. This is the first word of the ESV in verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The, access, the boldness and the confidence and the access is in Christ. This is another one of those every spiritual blessings that's found in Christ. Christ's church, and the reason why I say his church, is even though Paul's using the plural we in verse 12, he's just introduced the church in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness of access. So he's talking about we insofar as we are the church. So Christ's church has this access, and this access, I think, is part of how we put on display 
the wisdom of God's plan, specifically the wisdom of God's plan of making one new man out of Jew and Gentile. So, so three points under this. What does it mean that we have boldness and confident access? Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to take a little extended aside. I'm so glad um, Carol selected, is he worthy this morning? I want to take a few moments and look at the text behind this. So Paul has just made it clear that God's glory is going to be seen in the church functioning as this one new man with the dividing wall taken out, with Jew and Gentile gathering together. And ultimately, that glory is seen in this pinnacle in the joint access we have together to God. And that's precisely what we see celebrated and highlighted here in Revelation chapter 5. So the song, Is He Worthy? asks that question, Is He Worthy? Is He Worthy? In Revelation 5, the Apostle John's caught up into heaven, and he sees this. We're just going to read chapter 5. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated in the throne, on the thrones, so we're in a throne room, a scroll written and on the back, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And this is a common picture. You'd seal something, and the seal made it clear who it was from, and you'd, you'd have to indicate some level of authority to open it. In the same way that the postman's only to give you the mail if you're the resident that it's addressed to, who has the authority to open this scroll sealed? And I think by implication, sealed by God. Who has, who has the authority? Um, we're going to learn in the rest of the book of Revelation, this scroll contains the plagues, the judgments on planet Earth. There's, there's a lot going on in the scroll. You would need to be a great, mighty, powerful, authoritative person to open this scroll. It's nothing to be done lightly. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he could open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, how, how has Christ conquered? On the cross, he has conquered. This is not rooted in Christ's authority as God. This is not rooted in Christ's authority as creator. At the end of uh, Revelation chapter 4, there's a praise song to God simply for the virtue that he is the creator. Here, Christ's worthiness is linked to his conquering of his foes on the cross. His cross work, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The scroll is in the very hand of God. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, now look at this. Look at what they're glorifying the lamb for. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on all the earth. You get that? Not only did he purchase them, I think we see that usually pretty clearly when we read this passage. You are worthy because you redeemed these people. But notice also what's in here. You took a myriad of tongues and nations and tribes, and you made them into a new kingdom, you made them into a new people. Right, that's in the word kingdom there. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That aspect of this is what we display in our joint unity and in our access to God. Christ accomplished that on the cross as well. Yes, he redeemed us. He purchased us. We were ransomed. But we're also made into a new people. And we demonstrate that. This is, this is a culmination of Christ's glory and his honor. This is what the, the angelic beings are falling on their faces, praising him for. And we get the opportunity on earth to demonstrate that. 
And one of the chief ways we demonstrate that is in our corporate gatherings, in our corporate prayers, where we come together in access to this throne room. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So this is a crescendo, a pinnacle of God's glory. And Paul is saying that through his preaching, through the church living it out, we get to demonstrate some of this to the watching world and to the angels. And no more clearly is that seen than in our joint access. So your first blank is every tribe and every tongue. I'm I'm focusing on the we. The we that links back to the church in verse 10, which comes from Jew and Gentile. We have access. Now it's true, you have access and I have access. But the emphasis here is we, we all. Slave, free, male, female, child, aged. We together have access. Confident access. Bold access. Where do we have access to? Point number two. Our access is to the Father. That was given to us clearly um, back in chapter 2. Look at verses 17 and 18, just a few verses before. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit, to the Father. That very throne room scene that we just saw in Revelation 5, we have access there. And this should be jaw-dropping in its privilege. Um, Jaw-dropping in its privilege. We, this, this throne room, God the Father sits on a throne. We don't just sort of cautiously, quietly, nervously sort of creep in. The language here is is emphatic. We have boldness and access with confidence. In my mind, it's just almost unthinkable. I read it and I'm like, I, I still can't really believe it. We have confident, bold access to the Father in Christ. And the entire Old Testament system was set up to show just how holy God was, how separate from us he was. The notion of God's holiness is God's otherliness, his separateness. That's what's tied up in the word holy, 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 holy is God is other, 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 other. He's not like us. That's why you can't make images of him because he's not like anything on earth. And just as the heavens are above the earth, so his thoughts are not like our thoughts. They're above our thoughts. And so the Old Testament again and again and again Wants to, God puts into place institution structures that demonstrate, that show how separate and other and holy God is. And part of that is seen in all the washings and the regulations and all of the, the walls in approaching God at the temple. And there's all this, this far and no further, this far and no further. Are you clean? You cleanse yourself. You wash this far and no further. And so the, the, the high priest... On the Day of Atonement, only one man during one day of the year could go all the way into the holy place. And then he didn't linger there. He did what he had to do. He sprinkled the blood. He got out. The book of Hebrews tells us Christ has gone in and he sat down. And in him, we have boldness and confidence and access to the Father. Point two, our access is to the Father. Absolutely amazing. We're so used to being bold and brash that the notion of a, of a potentate, of a king, who is somebody you wouldn't just sort of prance into. Just think back to Esther. Remember the story of Esther? One of the chief um, dramatic questions is she knows that to enter the king's presence without him pointing his scepter at her is a death sentence. I mean, that's just an earthly king. This is the type of background we're drawing upon. Here is a holy God who has a throne room where angels cover their faces so they cannot look upon his glory. 
and, and we have, according to Paul here, bold, confident access in Christ. Point three, and this may go without saying, our access is only in Christ. Our access is only in Christ. This is the only way of this access. There aren't many ways of access to the Father. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this is a good reminder that this privilege is not in every religion. This privilege is only in Christ, only for those who are in Christ. It is not the wider mercies of God. This is how we come to the Father. Our access is only in Christ. So Christ's church has boldness and access in him. The notion here is every tribe and tongue, a multitude of people getting access to the Father, and there's an exclusivity here. It's only in Christ. Notice the other preposition. There's so much just tied up in this one verse. Christ's church has boldness and access through faith. Now we're looking at agency. Christ is the material reason. What he's done in him, in his finished work, in his priesthood, in his kingship, in his sonship, in, in who he is and what he has done, we have this access, and we get it through faith. Through faith. This is just another reiteration of what Paul has already said in Ephesians 2.8. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not your undoing. It is a gift of God and a result of works so that no one may boast. So probably most clearly in contrast to through faith is something he's just said in chapter 4, which means this access and this union with Christ and how you get into Christ is not through keeping the law. And again, if you're an Old Testament Jew coming to the temple, there were rituals and there were... Rules you had to follow to draw near to God, even as far as you could draw near. There was a lot of ink, well, not yeah, ink, in the uh, in the Torah. They used ink about how you would prepare to draw near, and so in these rules and regulations, you could draw this far, and this person could draw this. Our access is through faith. Paul has made it clear that in making us one new man in two fifteen, he abolished the law of commandments. And he makes it clear in 2.8 that faith is seen to be in contrast with works, not through the things that we do, but through our faith and trust in Christ. I mean, you could almost say the gospel summary is here. These blessings are in Christ and they're ours through faith. That's what the two prepositions tell us. Christ's church has boldness and access confidently through faith, not through keeping the law. And notice it's not just a general faith. I believe in God. I believe in a higher power. It's faith in him. Only that will do. Um, Just because someone believes in God doesn't make them a Christian. Trusting in Christ makes someone a Christian. So these immense blessings, this privilege of access, bold and confident access, is only found in Christ. And it's only ours through faith in him. Trusting in him. What that means is when you trust in Christ is who he is and what he has accomplished. Who he is and what he has accomplished, which Paul has already referenced back in 1.7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Who is he? He's the son of God. Who is he? He's the one who is worthy to open the scroll. Who is he? He's the firstborn from the dead. What has he done? He's lived a sinless life. He has died on the cross for our sins. He has risen again. He has been exalted to the right hand of God where he has been enthroned, where he sits. That's who he is. And as we have faith and trust in him, these blessings become ours. And that, these blessings happen to all of us whatever tribe or tongue or background we have, and that together we approach God, even as we're doing now in prayer and in song, side by side, shoulder by shoulder, together we give a little glimpse of that wonderful truth for which we saw in Revelation 5. The angels and the elders praise, praise, praise the Father and praise the Son. So Paul closes out that point. Which brings us into verse 13. 
Um, in contrast to our bold access, here we see Paul's many sufferings. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, verse 13 begins with a so or a therefore. And whenever you see a so or a therefore, it's a good question to ask what it's there for. What is that linking back to? This is showing some connection of thought. And what I think this is connecting back to is actually verse 2, where he first mentioned his sufferings. So just read verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And then I think it picks up. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. Well, what's he suffering? Verse 1, he's a prisoner. He's in a Roman jail on their behalf. That, that's what they've heard. That's what he's linking back to, which means this whole 13-verse section, 14-verse section, has a double inclusio. For this reason in verse 1, paralleled with for this reason in verse 14, and then, assuming you have heard, verse 13, so I ask. He, he's assuming they've heard something about him, and now, in light of what they've heard about him and his condition, he, he exhorts them not to lose heart. So, point A, the relationship, what they have heard, what they have heard. That's how this connects in thought. He's closing up this, this aside. He's getting ready for his prayer. And now he's coming back around to where he sort of began, where he introduced himself into this and his current situation, languishing in a Roman jail. And so he, he's assuming they've heard of that. And because they've heard of that, he has a request do not become discouraged. Do not become discouraged. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. So why might, why might they be discouraged? And I think this whole section has to do with thinking rightly about suffering. They've heard, the logic is they've heard that Paul is in jail. They may have even also heard that Paul has been set apart as an apostle with a specific ministry for the Gentiles. They've potentially heard these things. But now, point one, Paul is suffering on their behalf. He is suffering on their behalf. And so they might be discouraged because they think, man, poor Paul. It's our fault he's in jail. He's made it clear. The ministry that he has for them, he's, he's a prisoner, verse 1, on their behalf, on behalf of you Gentiles. And they may be tempted to think, man, it's our fault Paul's in jail. It's our fault Paul is suffering. And being in a Roman jail was not like being in a modern jail. There was no cable TV. There was no weight room. It was austere. It was rough. It's real sufferings. Now, the word used here actually is elsewhere translated tribulations, persecutions. So Paul is suffering, and they may be tempted to be discouraged, thinking they have some responsibility, some culpability. He's arrested precisely because of his ministry to the Gentiles. We saw that two weeks ago. The reason the Jews rioted and handed him over to the Romans is because they caught whiff of how he was offering their blessings, their Messiah, freely to the Gentiles without demanding they become Jews. So that might be why they might be tempted to be discouraged. Another reason they might be tempted to be discouraged is because by virtue of being in prison, Paul's ministry has been restricted. I mean, you read the book of Acts, and what's Paul do right out of the gate? He's off planting churches. And he shows up to a town, he preaches the gospel, he stays for a couple months, he leaves and he keeps repeating. And, and what you learn as you read through Acts, as you read through the epistles, there's a network of churches that the Apostle Paul has planted. Well, he's not really doing much of that right now in a prison cell. And they might be tempted to be discouraged because here, after such a great start, the Apostle to the Gentiles is languishing in a jail. They might be tempted to be discouraged. But there may be other reasons, but those are the two that came to my mind. Why, hearing about his imprisonment, they might be discouraged. And he wants to, don't, don't lose heart, don't be discouraged, don't be discouraged, even though I'm in jail on your account, and even though his ministry is restricted. Now, I just say restricted because elsewhere, Paul makes it clear his imprisonment actually is working for the advantage of the gospel. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.9. For I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. In many respects, Paul had the occasion and the opportunity to write what we call the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, precisely because he was in prison. Part of the New Testament gets written as a result of this. 
In Philippians, Paul makes it clear that him being sidelined for a time has emboldened others to preach. So I don't want to say that Paul's imprisonment has, has stopped or stifled his ministry, but certainly there's new restrictions. He's not free as he once was. So Paul's ministry has been restricted. That's why they might be tempted to be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. And then he gives the reason, and it's kind of um, counterintuitive. Why ought we not, given those reasons, be discouraged at Paul's imprisonment? I mean, he's, 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 we're, we're the Ephesian church, imagine. He's, he's in jail on our account. And being in jail, he's, he's restricted in his ministry. The, the, the ministry that God's called him to do has more limitations now than it once did. So why ought we not to be discouraged? He says, well, my sufferings are your glory. Oh, okay. So how does that work? And I think this is part of why Paul's saying this here. We are tempted to think wrongly about sufferings. And so before Paul begins his prayer, he wants to correct the way they think about his sufferings. Paul says his sufferings are their glory. Well, how does that work? That, to me, that's not immediately intuitive. And so that's where to take the rest of our time looking at is the rationale. It's in the relationship, the request, now the rationale. And he says it simply, his tribulations are their glory. His persecutions, his sufferings, for the sake of the gospel, are their glory. Well, how, how does that work? How can we find glory in Paul's sufferings? I can think of three reasons. First, such suffering is the means of furthering God's plan. Such suffering is the means of furthering God's plan. Paul's talked about God's administration, his, his plan and purpose that's being unfolded. And we even look back at, uh, at verse um, 3. Not verse 3, sorry. At verse 11. This was accomplished. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized or accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. How, how did God accomplish and realize his plan in Christ Jesus? Through Christ's suffering. The access that we have was bought through the suffering of the Son of God. God's plan, his wise stewardship, was a plan that his son would humble himself, come, suffer, and die. And afterwards be exalted. And afterwards be glorified. So our salvation was purchased and secured through the suffering of the Son of God. And what Paul makes clear here and elsewhere is the advancement of the gospel, the, the next phase of God's redemptive purpose and plan involves the suffering of Christ's body. The suffering of Christ's body. This is how the plan moves forward. Turn over to Colossians, if you would. Um, two books over to the right. Colossians chapter 1. Paul makes this point explicitly. We've looked at this in the last two weeks. Colossians 1.24. And we're going to see Paul's very counter-Western view of suffering. Counter-human view of suffering. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, chapter 124. That right there is just strange. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So we're talking about the same topic. Suffering on behalf of his readers. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister. Paul sees his suffering as completing the sufferings of Christ. And we've got to be very careful what we mean here. Paul is not suggesting that his sufferings are adding to the sufferings of Christ on the cross. And together, Christ's sufferings, his sufferings together, become a full atonement for God's people. And Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Tetelestai. But the application of salvation and the, the good news being proclaimed to the world is something Christ's body is currently doing. And Paul is saying there is a measure of suffering is attached to that as well. Remember in the book of Revelation, the martyrs under the throne of God have been slain for the testimony. They cry out, how long, O Lord, till you vindicate our blood? And the answer they get is, not until the full number of you is accomplished. 
God has a number of martyrs. God has a measure of suffering that his people, his purpose, and this is, this is what we've got to think carefully, because the prosperity gospel says God's means of spreading the gospel is through wealth and blessing, people driving Lexuses and Rolls Royces with gold-plated jets. That's how the gospel goes out. Paul says, no, it goes out through suffering. It goes out through the suffering of his people. And people are amazed and astounded at the lengths and the suffering people will go through to get the message out. And I think this must be an important message. This must be a great God if this person can endure such hardship. And that's the logic. Paul is going to gain a hearing by people who see what he's been through who hear of the suffering that he's had and he's come all this way to give them this message, maybe we should listen. This must be important. I think it's something like that. And so in that light then, Paul's suffering is their glory. We should be far more nervous and far more unsettled when everything seems to be going well. That's what Jesus says. Woe unto you when you're praised and spoken well of by men. So in Paul's rationale, his imprisonment, his suffering for their sake, for the sake of the gospel, is something to glory in. Similarly to how we glory in the death of Christ on the cross. To a much lesser extent, of course. Christ's suffering on the cross purchased our pardon. Paul's suffering and the suffering of other missionaries and other church planters. We can glory in as, as how the next phase of the plan is moving forward. How the, the kingdom of God is advanced and spread in this world. We can glory in that in a lesser sense as well. This is one of the reasons why I would recommend you read uh, Christian biographies in church history. There's plenty to glory in when you read about the sufferings and the faithfulness of God's people in, in generations and times past. And so Paul's pointing to his suffering. Here's something for you to glory in. Here's something for you to take heart in. Here's something for you to rejoice in. Not that we're sadists and masochists, but that we can see things are working rightly. The world will hate us. We hated him. Oh, look, Paul's being treated like his master. The body of Christ is receiving a similar response that its head received. Second, Paul's such suffering is a means of furthering God's plan. Second, such suffering confirms Paul's ministry. Turn over to 2 Corinthians, please. Again, the Apostle Paul has got a very counter-prosperity gospel way of Proving his ministry. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is about the issue of establishing his apostolic authority in contrast to and counter to the false apostles at the church of Corinth, parading themselves as angels of light, calling themselves super apostles. So Paul is, has the unenviable, and he clearly does not enjoy having to defend the foundation of his ministry and defend his apostleship. There are those who are saying, Paul is not a real apostle. Look at him, he's poor. Look at him, he stutters when he speaks. Look at him, his he's, personal presence is contemptible. He's not experiencing the rich, blessed blessing of God. After all, if he was, how could he be put into prison? But to use modern vernacular, he's not wearing $3,000 suits. He's not flying on gold-plated jets. So he can't really be experiencing God's blessing. Look at how Paul defends his ministry. Chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6. Start in verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And, and the reason why Paul has to defend his apostleship is not out of some sense of personal offense. Well, who do you think you are challenging me? His apostleship undergirds and anchors his message. It's the same rationale we see in Philippians. You need to believe this glorious truth about Jew and Gentile being made into one new man. Therefore, I need to give my apostolic credentials so you can trust my message. My message. Well, here, Paul's gospel of free grace, forgiveness of sins in Christ, is tied directly to his apostolic authority. And so his concern is that they not receive the grace of God in vain, for he says... In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. 
but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So how does Paul commend his ministry? He says, look, I'm not putting stumbling blocks in front of you. I'm not putting problems in front of you. In fact, I'm going to commend my ministry. How does he commend his ministry? By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. That's suffering. Now, there's another piece to this. It's Paul's proof of his ministry is suffering with holiness, suffering with integrity. Because the second half here, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with weapons of righteousness, the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. So Paul says, you want to see the proof of my ministry? Look at my sufferings and the holiness with which I've endured them. Because, of course, people can suffer. And when, when we suffer, and I think this is part of why God's plan is that this is how it confirms his, his ministers and their ministry. When the pressure's on, when that's when what really is inside of us comes out. I've said this before, but it turns out that I'm the sort of chap who, when I get what I want, I can be nice. Just give me what I want. Let things go my way. I can be agreeable. I can be friendly. I can be gracious. Just give me what I want. When I don't get what I want, when I don't get the sleep I wanted, when I'm running late, when my computer's not working, when the things that I don't want are happening, then it turns out I can be impatient, demanding, selfish, self-centered, angry. And so in the suffering is when the reality of what's inside comes out. And so the genuineness of Paul's ministry is seen by, on the one hand, look at the immense suffering he's been through, and look at the holiness and integrity with which he's conducted himself in it. That's what he points to. He doesn't point to his gold-plated chariot. He doesn't point to um, anything like that. He doesn't even point to the size of his ministry. I, I planted the largest church in Asia Minor. It's huge. Go to chapter, sorry, I won't do that again. Go to chapter 12. Go to chapter 12 where he makes this point explicit. This, this is, we got we to retrain our framework because even today, is this how we evaluate ministers today, missionaries today? Do we expect that the means that they will advance the gospel will be in part through their suffering? Do we look for the confirmation of their ministry in how they suffer with purity and holiness? That's how Paul sets himself apart, right? Um, Sorry, chapter 11, not 12. Chapter 11, starting verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, even if you do accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. He hates doing this. You can tell he just hates boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. If you gladly bear with fools being wise yourself, but you bear if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. So Paul's about ready to boast. What's he going to say? I, I wrote half the books of the New Testament. You could say that. I've had not one, but at least two, maybe three, personal visits by the resurrected Lord. He could say that. He could say, I was trained by Gamaliel. I'm a Pharisee, the tribe of Benjamin. He can say a number of things. How's he going to boast? He doesn't want to boast. He says, you made me do it. I'm going to have to boast. I have to boast. Okay. But whatever anyone else dares to boast, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a man. He does not like to talk this way. With fu- then... How are you a better servant, Paul? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times 
I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was set adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from these other things. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. That's how Paul boasts. It's not the way we generally do things. It's not generally the way we size things up. We boast with, and not, don't misunderstand me. It's not that when a missionary or a minister, people get converted under their ministry, it's not a cause to celebrate. We ought to. And so when somebody in the mission field can say, hey, we have three new converts this month, praise God, we rejoice with them. That's not fundamentally how we should evaluate the authenticness, the authenticity. My mom's not even here to correct me. The authenticity of someone's ministry. That's not what Paul points to. He doesn't point to, look at all the churches I planted. He points to his sufferings and his faithfulness in ministry. And this is a different way to think about suffering. So because of that, Paul's current suffering can be their glory. And the last point, we've got to move quickly here. It's not only to such suffering the means for the advance of the gospel. Not only is such suffering that which confirms Paul's ministry, but the reality Such suffering confirms his and our salvation. Such suffering isn't just a confirmation for ministers and missionaries and apostles. Such suffering is confirmation of our salvation. We're not saved by suffering, but the genuine testedness of our faith is seen, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, as we endure through suffering. Let's read you a couple passages. Remember the parable of the sower. What sets the, the seed that fell on good soil apart from the seed that fell on soil of thorns and rock. Matthew thirteen twenty one. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a little while. And when the tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That's one evidence that this is not a genuine convert. When the tribulation comes up, he's gone. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 24. Now, these, these are not things we put up on our walls. They are things repeated many times in the New Testament. I'm just going to read to you some of them, and then we'll we'll close in prayer. We need to think differently about suffering. Not that we're looking for it, not that we're trying to find it, but we need to understand it comes part and parcel with our call. Okay. Matthew 24, 9 to 13. Jesus, they, this is Jesus. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated for all nations for my, hated by all nations for my sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Jesus. There's going to be some tough times. People are going to fall away and those who endure go to heaven. They they didn't earn it by enduring. They proved the genuineness of their faith by which they were saved through their perseverance. That's Jesus. Let's go to Paul in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's generally the part of the verse that we put on the wall, on the bumper sticker, on the T-shirt. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You catch that language? You and I are children, fellow heirs of God, provided, just quoting Paul, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or we can look at 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul writes this, this light momentary affliction is preparing, it's doing something, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says it probably most succinctly in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all, 
not some, not many, not most, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul calls on them not to be discouraged by his suffering. And the corrective here is they're tempted to think wrongly about his suffering. He says, no, no, it's your glory. It's your glory. It, it's, of course, this is how the job gets done. Things like this is how the message moves forward. And, and, and things like this, these sufferings serve to confirm my ministry and to confirm the genuineness of my faith and my faithfulness. And by implication, this is what we should expect. And by implication, these are the things that confirm our calling as well. And I've belabored this point just because we tend to think so differently about that. Not that suffering is enjoyable. It's not that Paul is saying we just we'd like suffering. But we see in and through it the purpose of God to sanctify us, to purify us, to bring praise to his name. See, God gets glory not when his people drive around in jets and are praised and heralded as great people, but when his people endure suffering in humility, in holiness, in meekness. The watching world says, wow, their savior must be great if he can sustain them. What they have in Christ must be really valuable because when they lost everything else, they still were joyful. That's the rationale. We prove the surpassing value of Christ. Or as Paul says a little earlier in our passage, the insurmountable, the incalculable riches of Christ are such that you can take everything else. and We're still rich. And we act like we're still rich. And the world goes, I don't get that. The world is not stunned or surprised when somebody immediately after scoring a touchdown, getting victory, praises God. Not that they shouldn't do such a thing. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's not terribly impressive. Things are going well for you. It's easy to praise God when things go well for you. Praise God when things go bad for you. Endure suffering well. That brings glory to God. That confirms our faith. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, this passage contains such glorious truth about the access we have and such challenging reality about our call and the role of suffering in the life of your people and the advancement of your gospel. The Apostle Paul is bound in a prison cell, and yet he speaks of bold access, free access. Lord God, um, I pray that you'd help us to think rightly about these things, that we would prize more than any treasure or earthly possession the access, the freedom, the privilege we have in Christ, that we would make use of it, that we would come before your throne again and again and again, even as we do now. Help us to endure suffering well. Help us to to think about it rightly. Help us to... um, View it as, as your tool, your refining fire to purify us. Help us to understand that it's not going to be through riches and praise that the world will come to know that you are who you are and the Lord Jesus is truly your son. But through our unity and through our suffering well, give us the grace to do both. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.